Beloved, you may be familiar with a uh, phrase where a superior talks to a subordinate and has a, quote, come to Jesus talk. Um, I've never really come to a conclusion whether or not I'm entirely comfortable with that. It is uh, based on, on the truth of the significance and the weight of coming to Jesus. The idea in the way in which it was used or is used is that basically the uh, subordinate needs to have a attitude change or a behavior change. Could be with a uh, employer and an employee, could be a teacher and a student, a coach and a player, could be a commander and a soldier. And even as we think of that, beloved, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 14. What we have here is we're closing out this magnificent epistle, this wonderful letter, this sermonic epistle. We have the author giving his final exhortations, his final words of wisdom. There are some matters that must be dealt with, final orders of business to be attended to. Or extending the illustration from before, a commander giving his final charge to his troops. Uh, This was a word that the original audience needed to hear then, and it is certainly a word that you and I need to hear today as well. Because the situation that they faced is different, but very similar to the situation that we face as well. That is namely the pull of the world. The pull of the world on this side of eternity, even for the believer, for the believing Jew or the believing Gentile, the Christian Hebrew audience and a Christian Gentile audience or a mix of Gentiles and Jews in a Christian audience, the pull of the world is like a gravitational force. You can't escape it. It is always there. And so it is in this midst that the author, as he is giving his closing charge to his troops, so to speak, he says, come to Jesus. It's interesting. Even as I read verses 7 through 14, at first glance, you might say, well, that's, that's a variety of different topics, and there's kind of a shift from the first few verses to the latter ones as well, but it is very simple and straightforward. The message, the anchor that draws together all of these eight verses is Jesus. In verse 8, Jesus is the same today, or same yesterday, today, and yes, forever. And then in verse 13, come outside the camp, go outside the camp to him, to Jesus. Jesus is the anchor that draws together all of these verses, that unifies this passage with a charge, which namely has come to Jesus. It could be come to Jesus for the first time if you have not bowed the knee to him as Lord and as Savior. Or it could even be if you are a believer, come again, go out again from the pull of the world to him yet again, afresh uh, new. Beloved, listen as I read verses 7 through 14 of Hebrews chapter 13. This is the word of God in the passage that we have here this morning. Hebrews 13 and verse 7, God says to you and me, the author wrote to his audience, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yes, and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods 
through which those who were thus occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, so that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Hence, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. This is the word of God, beloved, that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. The risks, the danger, the pressures and hardship and temptation and pull of life and friends can be difficult. And it is out of this milieu, out of this mix that God speaks to you and to me. Uh, Jesus, beloved, is the anchor of our hope. He is the anchor of this passage. He is immutable. He's unchanging, and he is exclusive. And that really would be kind of a twofold outline of these verses. The exhortation from God to you and to me is to stay strong, finish well, come out of the camp of the world, and go out to Jesus again, perhaps for the first time, or go out Again, First, we see in verses 7 through 9 is a reminder that he is immutable. He is our Savior. Your Savior is unchanging. Come within the veil to him outside of the camp. This is, verse 8, a mighty Christ-centered verse. This mighty Christ-centered declaration, almost an exclamation that you see in verse 8, is surrounded by two exhortations. It's surrounded by a reminder in verse 7 and a warning in verse 9. Uh, So we'll take this as the verses come. First, the reminder that we see in verse 7. Uh, The text begins, you see the word there, remember. And this is not a suggestion. This is not a good idea. This is a command. Remember. It's the same kind of call to recall, a call to remember that Jesus gave. For example, John 15, verse 20, in his upper room discourse, he told his disciples, remember the word that I said to you. Or John in Revelation 3, 3, John in his vision records the words of Jesus, the risen Jesus, Revelation 3, 3, remember what you've received and heard. Uh, Paul told Timothy in Paul's closing letter, 2 Timothy 2, verse 8, Paul exhorted, encouraged Timothy, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. So remember the word, remember Jesus. What's interesting here, look at the verse again. The author of Hebrews here says, remember those who led you. Remember those who went before you. Remember those who guided you. And it's interesting, those who led you, the author brackets his uh, closing chapter, his, his closing words, three times with a reference to the leaders. Those who led you here in verse 7, the leaders in verse 17, and the leaders again in verse 24. In verse 17, obey your leaders, submit to your leaders. And in verse 24, greet your leaders. Now, The leaders, the men that God raises up to care for his church in the New Testament are called many and various diverse things, pastors and shepherds. 
uh, elders, presbyters, overseers, bishops, deacons as well. These are the leaders. I, I like what Newell, the pastor and the commentator, said. He said this, quote, The assembly of God has no earthly popes, though it does have divinely appointed and therefore divinely anointed brethren upon whom God has placed the burden of the care of the assembly. These are elders and deacons, end quote. So the author commands the audience there to remember those who led you, but specifically remember what? Their hairstyles, their exercise patterns, uh, their favorite foods? No, that is not it. Remember what they taught and remember not so much how they lived, remember what they taught, remember how they lived, that kind of flows well from a sermon standpoint, but what he really says is remember what they taught, and as we'll see in a moment, remember the outcome of their life. Remember their teaching, remember their example. Maybe you've heard the illustration, uh, two wings of evangelism, uh, and the imagery is that an airplane needs two wings to fly so also evangelism needs two wings the wings of word and the wings of witness you need the proclamation and you need the demonstration imperfect though it is on this side of eternity we need both word and witness those are the two wings of evangelism in the same way these are the two wings of discipleship the ministry of these men, of the ones who went before the audience, who guided the audience. The two wings are their word and their witness. Remember your leaders who taught well and imitate your leaders who lived well. And actually imitate the faith of your leaders who lived well. And we should remember that in the economy of God, in the leadership, in the men that God exalts and lifts up to care for the assembly. There are not many mighty. There are not many noble. There aren't many flashing. There aren't many who are scintillating. There's not many stars who dazzle. They don't necessarily need to have brilliant personalities. They don't necessarily need to be powerful orators, nor compelling crowd pullers. Rather, come back here to the text, look at the rest of verse 7. Remember the men who spoke the word of God to you. This is their teaching. We don't remember them again for their hairstyle, their etc., etc. We don't remember them for any peripheral type of things, we remember them first and foremost because they taught us, they shared with us, they preached, they taught, they lived the word of God. It's interesting, the author of Hebrews, you may remember back in chapter one, he opens up this letter with God speaking. God spoke in various ways with prophets through visions, dreams, and Jesus Christ is the final word. So chapter one is opening with God speaks. Now the author closes this letter with God speaking again, this time through godly men, men of God who are armed with the word of God, men who feed the church of God, feed the church of God, which God himself, according to the exhortation Paul gives to the elders in Ephesus, 
that God purchased with his own blood. Shepherd the flock of God, the church of God, that he himself, God himself, Jesus Christ, the man, the God-man, purchased with his very own blood. Now, back in our text, we can ask the question, why does the author here say remember? Uh, Why doesn't he say honor? Uh, We will see later on in verse 17, as I mentioned before, he says, obey, submit to them. But why why does he say remember? Well, if we finish out the rest of verse 7, I think this helps us understand why he says remember in this way. He says, remember them and then, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Literally considering the outcome of their life. So, When he says, remember them, and then the literal understanding of this phraseology, it's very probable that he's talking about leaders who are no longer with them. He's talking about men who perhaps helped found this congregation, this church of these Hebrew Jewish Christians who have gone home to be with the Lord, perhaps through martyrdom or through perhaps through normal causes. He's saying, remember the men who were faithful to the end. Remember those who left behind a steadfast example. Men who ran the race unwavering to the end, who ran through the tape. And if verse 7 is indeed a reference to those who have gone home to be with the Lord, the other two verses, verse 17 and 14, clearly are the living leaders of the congregation, which in those cases, when we get to there, the most immediate context is the leaders of the local church. But here, when he says, remember those who led you, and considering the result of their conduct, he is saying that we need to remember. We need to, in a sense, surround ourselves with reminders of greatness in the Lord. We have fellowship with one another. We can have fellowship with believers in other churches. We can listen to sermons online, good sermons that is, all that type of thing, and we should read the works or listen to the words of dead men. Have communion with all the saints, both those living and those who are no longer with us, those who are now living eternally perfectly in the Lord. And notice what he says at the end. The second exhortation even here in this reminder. He says, imitate their faith. Similar to what Paul said, for example, Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God as beloved children. Or you may remember 1 Corinthians 11.1, he told the immature church in Corinth, be imitators of me even as I imitate Christ. And what the author here says is, notice what he does say, what he doesn't say. He doesn't, Paul said, imitate me. Here in Hebrews 13, 7, the author doesn't say imitate them. What does he say? Look at it. He says imitate their faith. The point is it's not a mechanical copying of actions and behavior, but an emulation of a steadfast faith that stood the test of time. And to be sure, their conduct, the behavior of godly men is part of the package of faith. But this is much more. It expands beyond this. This is the whole package. The way my beloved Margie used to say, this is the whole enchilada. This is an extension of what the author has already said back in chapter 6, verse 12. 
that you may be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Of course, in Hebrews 6.12, he's talking about all the godly cloud of witnesses, living and dead men and women that surround us. But here, there's a focus on the leaders that have gone before. Now, these leaders in that original church, they were just like the Apostle Paul. They weren't perfect. They were flawed. They were very much like the examples that we saw back in chapter 11 in the great hall of faith. Tremendous examples of men and women of faith who heard the word of God, who believed the word of God, who trusted the word of God, who obeyed the word of God, although very imperfectly. We remember that all the examples in Hebrews chapter 11, that God gives us the pictures of the heroes of the faith in scripture, warts and all. So these leaders here, like the apostle Paul and the godly men and women in chapter 11, aren't perfect, but they are worthy of emulation. More directly to the exact point, their faith is worthy of emulation. Again, surround yourself with reminders of greatness of godly saints gone by. So that is the reminder. Now we come to verse 8, which is this first anchor verse in this passage, where we come face to face with a strong declaration, where you come face to face with a strong declaration of your immutable, unchanging Savior. And this is in between the reminder and the warning. You may remember back in the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 13, God is there in a sense saying, commit yourself to God's people, to the brethren, and even to believers that you don't know who are strangers, and to believers who are prisoners. In verse 7, we just saw, he says, commit yourself to God's leaders. Now in verse 8, commit yourself to Christ. Commit yourself to the laity. Commit yourself to the leaders. Commit yourself, ultimately, first and foremost, primarily to the Lord. Look at verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and, yes, forever. Forever. He is unchangeable. He's a chainless, changeless high priest. And in fact, this divine changelessness, this divine immutability also began the letter back in chapter 1 verses 11 and 12. And again here he closes out with this great theological truth. In chapter 1 verses 11 and 12, you may remember the author there opened up his letter they all will become old as a garment. All of creation will become old as a garment, and as a mantle, you, God, will roll them up. As a garment, they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Creation, the very creation, the heavens and the earth will be rolled up like an old garment, but his years will never come to an end inasmuch as they never had a beginning. The Son, Jesus Christ, God himself, of course, was there in eternity past, and he will remain. He is constant. He is stable. Because he is stable, he is reliable, and he is trustworthy to eternity future. So, What's the relationship between these exhortations, between the reminder and the warning? What's the relationship between the exhortations and this declaration? Namely, he is always reliable because he's always unchangeable. He's the same yesterday, 
when he was there in creation. He was the one doing the creating creation, his incarnation, his crucifixion. Today, his intercession, which the author has brought before us in earlier chapters, that as our changeless high priest, he's interceding for us even now and forever. The great consummation of your faith and my faith at our glorification and the great consummation of the new heavens and the new earth. Again, the songs we were singing flow so well into this. We can think of it this way. Yesterday, he purchased your salvation. Today, he prays for your salvation. And yes, forever, tomorrow, he will perfect your salvation. When you put off the perishable and you put on the imperishable. He is the same yesterday and today, yes, and forever. This is Beloved, a unit of meaning in and of itself, a fantastic, brief, concise, Christological doxology that is well worth our attention, well worth our meditation, well worth our devotion. Because, again, even getting back to where the rubber meets the road for you and for me and for the original audience, in our case, in a culture that adores ambiguity, There's so much changing. There's so much daunting. Yet shining brightly through this fog, Jesus Christ is not waxing or waning in his power to save. Power to save from the power from the penalty of sin. Power to save from the power of sin over you and power to save even from the very presence of sin. Beloved, his help, his grace, his power, his guidance are permanently at your disposal and my disposal. That's what God is communicating to you and to me. So there was a reminder. There was that great statement, that declaration. Now there's a warning in verse 9. And this continues the theme. Don't neglect so great a salvation. Don't needlessly, carelessly drift away. Don't fall away. Stay anchored to the unchanging Christ. Again, stay anchored to the unchanging Christ, flowing from the declaration to this exhortation. Look at verse 9. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teaching. So be committed to God's people. Be committed to God's leaders. Be committed to the Lord. Be committed to his truth so that you are not carried away by varied and strange teachings. This is... Similar to Paul's warning that he gave the Ephesian church, chapter 4, verse 14, Paul says, we, we, we in Christ, in the body of Christ, we are no longer children tossed here and there by ways and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Don't be carried away by every wind of doctrine, by the fad, the for a day, latest and greatest, that some purveyor of gobbledygook sucks out of his thumb. I didn't have that last statement in my notes. That was... (laughs) Don't be carried away by varied and strange teachings, by xenos teachings, by foreign teachings, by alien teachings. You see, strange, foreign, alien is attractive because it's unusual, but it leads astray. And even... Christians, even Bible-believing Christians, can fall into the temptation, especially from a pastor standpoint, from someone who writes books in academia, that you have to come up with something new and something novel. 
But that is a danger. There's nothing new under the sun. And in the extreme, you could have a full-out fall into heresy. I don't often throw out names, but this is so powerful here. You may be familiar with the radical plunge into heresy of Andy Stanley. Andy Stanley is the pastor of one of the biggest megachurches in America. And among his heretical statements, he said this, quote, we have to get past the, quote, God said it, that settles it mentality. He uses it as proof. He says, the first, second, and third century Christians believed Jesus loved them before the Bible told them so. And he was basically saying that to say, we just need to get away from the Bible. So more and more, he's attacking the word of God. It begins again with this fascination, the allure of something new, something unique, something strange. And beloved, we need to be aware of that. We need to be careful of that. And we are reminded here in the context, again, that verse 8 grounds the surrounding exhortation. It provides a foundation for the reminder and the warning, namely that since Christ is changeless, so also the faith is equally the same. Our faith and its teachings do not change. Mark this. There is no such thing as new and improved Christianity. If it's new, it's not true. That's why Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, said in verse 3 of his one-chapter book, contend earnestly for the faith, which was what? Once for all delivered to the saints. That's what John the Apostle in his epistle, his first epistle, 1 John, again and again he was driving home the point, point, I'm not bringing anything new to you. I'm bringing something to you that you've heard before from the beginning. Point For John, point for Jude, point here, the author of Hebrews, is if it's good teaching, it's the same teaching as first century Christians taught. Since Jesus is unchangeable, so also this teaching that should be from this pulpit, from our Bible hour classes and our home groups and the women's ministry and our children's ministry is objective, definite, and unchangeable. This kind of teaching is not passed on by some evolutionary process. It's not grown or made more effective by new marketing schemes. It's not this truth which was once for all delivered to the saint is not dilapidated or weakened by transmission. Rather, it's passed on with force, clarity, and power. And beloved, the gospel, then and now, never comes with the applauding approval of the world. Any dead fish can float with the current. But this message that the author's talking about here is not to be tampered with, distorted, embellished, watered down, or compromised in any way, shape, or form. That's what the author is dri- that's what God is driving home to you and to me. At the end of verse nine, look at the text. And this is the reason why. For, reason why, it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. The heart, not the body. He's not talking about muscles. He's not even talking about your electrocardiogram. He's talking about the spiritual heart. And I was even thinking this with the songs that we were singing. This is not the you that's decaying and falling apart. This is the you that's eternal. This is the you that will either spend eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. 
And it's good for the heart, for your heart to be strengthened, made firm, established, confirmed, to be made steadfast and constant and steadfast in, with the result, in your fellowship with Christ. You'll remember Paul said at the end of his letter to the church in Philippi, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That doesn't mean that you can beat Mike Tyson in the boxing ring or that you can become the president of this, that, or the other thing, or you can accomplish that. That means that we can do all things according to the will of God. Brother and sister, you can do this thing. You can be strengthened by the grace of God. It's the gift given and the grace that empowers. And then he says, not by foods through which those who were thus occupied were not benefited. Now, you know, what's going on here? This is one of those things where we kind of turn here and we're, we're trying to wrap our minds around this. I mean, we can understand grace and law. Uh, we can understand grace and the gospel, but what is this grace in food? Where did this come from? And we remember, again, that the original audience received this letter as Jewish men and women who became Christians. They were still ethnically Jewish, which is a wonderful, beautiful thing, doubly blessed, but they became Christians. They were no longer Judaizers. They are now believers, and they were redeemed so that, and I, I think I may have told this story before, but my friend Marty Wolf, who is an evangelist, a missionary to Jewish people, he's Jewish himself, when people ask him, well, can you eat, you know, ham and pork and bacon? He says, sure. He goes, when I was redeemed, my stomach was too. You see, that's the picture here is God did have in the Old Covenant a place and a reason for the dietary laws for the nation of Israel so that they would be a unique and set-apart nation. But now in Christ, even as we see Peter's vision in Acts chapter 8, God has declared all foods clean, all things clean, because Jew and Gentile are together in one body. That's the dynamic here. And even as we think of this relaxation of the dietary laws for both Jew and Gentile. The standards, in one sense, in the more important sense, haven't lessened. God's standards have intensified. They've increased. They're even more focused on the inside. You see, under the old covenant, the priority always was, the priority always was the internal over the external. Now, in the new covenant, <clears throat> without the external regulations, there's a greater focus, greater attention on the internal, truth from the inside out. And by way of great application for all of us, adults, and we understand for our children, the greater the privilege, the greater the freedom, the greater the responsibility. And what we have here is all the food and the furniture of the old covenant are now obsolete because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and yes, forever. And so we don't forget the greater and weightier things. We don't forget the teaching of Jesus. In John 4, 34, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Beloved, the word of God nourishes the church. The word of God nourishes the Christian man, the Christian woman. And when the church is without this kind of teaching, as was first delivered to the saints, Christians will always go in this direction. They will be pulled back to the ways of the world, to their old religious thinking. 
And when a professing or even genuine Christian gets sucked into any kind of false teaching, there's a loss of joy, a loss of reward, and a loss of effectiveness. But when the word of God is strong in the church, the faith will be strong, the people will be strong. It depends upon the word of God and it leads to Christ. It leads back to Christ, leads forward to Christ, leads always to Christ. One's drawn into false worship because he is first drawn away by false teaching. I like what John Huss, the pre-reformer, martyr said he said seek the truth listen to the truth teach the truth love the truth abide by the truth and defend the truth so beloved jesus is immutable he's unchanging the second anchor of jesus is he is exclusive his way is exclusive we see this in verses 10 through 14 what the author is saying in this kind of final apex summary of the great contrast that has been the subject of the entire letter of the absolute infinite superiority of Christ as the infinitely better mediator with the infinitely better sacrifice, the infinitely better high priest, the infinitely better covenant, the infinitely better even shaking as we've seen before. This is the final contrast between the old and the new. And this is where the author is saying by way of exhortation, verse 13, separate yourself to Jesus. Separate yourself out once and again, finally and wholeheartedly from your old way of thinking, your old religious system, and sanctify yourself in Christ. And you see, the new covenant is more exclusive because it excludes from the inside out, not from the outside in. Because it's based on the internal, not the external. Because it's based on the spiritual, not the ceremonial. So at verse 10, he says, we have an altar. We have a figurative altar. We don't have a literal altar. Uh, We know that back in chapter 7, verse 13, the author has already told us that the one, he's speaking of Christ coming after this man of mystery, Melchizedek, the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. No one has officiated at a literal altar. But what the author opens up verse 10 here is he says we have a symbolic altar. We have a figurative altar. Verse 10 continues. Look at what he says. From which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat, no authority to eat. So the Jewish leaders, the leaders of Israel who aren't Christian, who are still serving. Remember, the author wrote this before AD 70, before the destruction of the temple. So there were priests and a high priest that were still sacrificing at the temple, still obeying the food regulations of the old covenant. And if they're not in Christ, they have no authority, they have no right to eat, figuratively speaking, at this symbolic altar. They're not saved. They haven't tasted redemption. They haven't tasted forgiveness. They haven't tasted adoption into the family of God by which they can cry out. They can go inside the very veil into the very presence of God himself with confidence. They don't have that privilege. And then he gives an illustration again from the Old Covenant, from the Old Testament, verse 11 
for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. What this, talking about, what this is talking about here is on the Day of Atonement, they would take a bull and they would, take a, they would actually take two goats. One of the goats would be a scapegoat that they would expel out into the wilderness. But they would take a bull and a goat and they would slaughter it and they would take the blood and pour it on the altar. And then unlike some of the other sacrificial offerings where they would butcher and eat the meat and some of the meat would go to the priests, on the Day of Atonement, the carcass, the entire carcass, after the blood was drained of both the bill bull and the goat would be burned outside the camp. Leviticus 16.27 The bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be taken outside the camp and they shall burn their hides, their flesh, and their refuse in the fire. Now, one of the points that we need to understand from that is the burning of the carcasses outside the camp had nothing to do with the atonement. Because why? Because it is the shedding of blood that provides atonement. That life is in the blood and it is the blood that makes the atonement. And what the author is doing here is he's telling this Jewish audience that structure alone is like a body without breath in it. The old was external, not primarily internal. It was ceremonial, not spiritual. It was, in a certain sense, impersonal, not personal, individual, the way the new covenant, high priestly work of Christ is for you and for me. Think of the empty cocoon of a caterpillar that morphed into a butterfly and has left the cocoon. The cocoon is empty. It's lifeless because the life has left. In the same way, beloved, the old was a formal religion, an empty shell. It was the shell, the form, and the outward sign rather than the life and the substance and the inward reality. And that sets the stage for his next statement in verse 12, namely that Jesus Christ, by way of reminder, is both the sacrifice and the substance and the sustenance. That's three. I think both only means two, but you'll forgive me. Verse 12. Therefore, Jesus also, so that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, that he might set apart, separate as sacred to God, make holy, that he might consecrate the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. His suffering, the gold of his natural purity was put to the, in the crucible and melted down by the white hot heat of suffering and grief. And that proved his purity. And that was outside the gate. John 19, 17, they took Jesus therefore and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. Now, what correlation, what is the author saying here? Because the animal in the Day of Atonement was killed inside the camp, inside the gate, and it was taken outside and burned. Jesus was killed outside, and of course he wasn't burned. The commonality here is the disgrace, the scandal. This is a rock of stumbling. This is a stone of offense. It's the offense of the cross. The disgrace of the cross is what the author is driving home here. And this is, beloved, even going back to the purpose 
of the old covenant, the purpose of the great day of atonement was always pointing to the final and all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ as he was consumed by suffering and grief outside the gate. Through that, he paid the debt we owe. Through his own blood, his blood that can make the foulest clean. And that's me. And as a result of this, the altar moved from being inside the temple, the literal altar inside the temple, to the symbolic altar outside the temple, outside the gate, outside the camp. What the author is saying here to the audience, what he's saying to you and me is, you don't belong there. To them, you don't belong in the apostate Judaism that was beckoning them to return. You belong to Jesus. Or, we could put it this way, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Look at verse 13. Hence, let us go out to him outside the camp. Now, you notice a change there. He talked about outside the gate in verse 12 and outside the camp here. He wanted to make sure that the audience understood he wasn't just talking about literal Jerusalem by the gate. That's why he says the outside the camp. He's talking not about Jerusalem. He's talking about Judaism, about apostate Judaism. And by the way, the boundary of the camp under the Old Covenant, the boundary of the camp of the nation of Israel in their wilderness wanderings was very precise. There was no no man's land. You, you were either inside the camp or you're outside the camp. And what the author is saying here is outside the apostate Judaism that had crucified their Messiah, that's where you need to go. There needs to be a separation, separation away from the old way of thinking and a separation unto the Lord. Again, I briefly mentioned this before. Six words that summarize the believing Hebrew's position and the believing Gentile's position is within the veil and outside the camp. And you see the paradoxical truth. We now under the new covenant can go all the way inside the veil where they couldn't go before. But we only do that by going outside the camp of our old way of thinking. The application is since he was outlawed and expelled by Judaism, therefore you have no place in this. Since he's outside the camp, you must follow him there. Look at what he says in the middle of verse 13, bearing his reproach. <clears throat> Beloved, since Jesus was rejected by Judaism, both literally in his crucifixion and symbolically in the suffering and his consuming in grief and sorrow outside the camp, therefore you must leave the camp of Judaism. You must leave the camp of the pull of the world, of the temptation, of the hardship and pressures of life completely and come to Jesus wholeheartedly without reservation to identify with him as your Lord and Savior. And then finally, in verse 14, you must choose between a earthly religion and a heavenly reality. You must choose between an earthly religion and a heavenly reality. Look at verse 14. For Reason why, again, for here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. We don't have a lasting city. 
The old securities are insecure. The old order is about to crash. It's like the man who said, I spent my whole life climbing the corporate ladder only to find out the ladder was up against the wrong wall. Everything is passing and fading away. But this is the chronicle of despair of this present misery. But we are seeking the city which is to come. The seeking a country of our own. Beloved, all Christians, Jews and Gentiles, male and female, young and old, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, are strangers and aliens on the earth. Remember what the author, how he summed up the patriarchs of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob in chapter 11, verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were watched as strangers and exiles on the earth. Beloved, we are leaving a city that is doomed to pass away, and we're leaving for the city which has foundations, whose architect is and builder is God. Helen Keller Um, I don't know where she was at from a faith standpoint or from a belief standpoint, but I came across a quote that I think is quite palpable. Uh, She said this, quote, death is no more than passing from one room into another, but there's a difference. If if you're young and you're not sure who Helen Keller was, she was uh, deaf and blind. So she was a deaf and blind woman who overcame tremendous adversity and became educated and a, even a prolific writer. She said, death is no more than passing from one room into the, another, but there's a difference for me, you know, because in that other room, I will be able to see. Beloved, that is what we are headed towards. We are leaving the land of the dying to enter into the land of the eternally living. But in the meantime, when you fold up the garment of your life, will you leave behind a testimony? Will you leave behind a record, a footprint, an influence of, by God's grace and mercy, having run the race well, all the way to the end with a steadfast faith in the unchanging Christ through the tape. That's the question for you and for me. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for opening our hearts and minds, Lord, to be able to understand the riches and the truth. Lord, Lord, thank you that it's the same truth because you're the same Savior. It's the same way of mediation between sinful men and women and you as a holy God. We thank you for the great work that you're doing in all of the churches, all of the Bible-believing churches, and in our beloved Santan Bible Church. Be glorified, Lord, in all that we do. And it's for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray, that we sing, that we have fellowship, that we do all these things. Amen.